All right, everybody, welcome to our latest uh, Business First Roundtable. We try to do these about quarterly, and uh, this time uh, we've got a good one. It's on the uh, state of the medical marijuana industry at this point uh, in Ohio. Um, so we're going to go around and have everybody uh, introduce themselves and kind of explain uh, what your connection uh, to the industry uh, is, and, and then we'll uh, we'll get started in earnest. Uh, Justin, do you want to go ahead and start? Yeah, sure. Uh, Justin Hunt. Currently executive vice president at uh, Grow Ohio, which is a level one cultivator and processor out of Muskingum County. Right. Okay. Andy. Andy Joseph. Uh, I'm the president of Apex Supercritical, which manufactures uh, extraction equipment, primarily for the cannabis industry. I'm also the CEO of Ohio Grown Therapies, which is a level one cultivator processor, uh, as well as a dispensary in Newark, Ohio. Okay. Great. I'm Mark Hamlin with the Ohio Department of Commerce, and I help run the medical marijuana control program on the Department of Commerce side of the, the state. Okay, great. Sandy. I'm Sandy Linsky. I'm an attorney with McMurray and Schuster in New Albany, and um, we are a government compliance um, law firm. So currently we're helping and assisting with um, licensure, getting licensed with the Department of Commerce, but we're looking also at employment issues that uh, will come up and any foreseeable legal issues that are involved with uh, medical marijuana. Okay. And Doug? Uh, I'm Professor Doug Berman, teach at the Ohio State University Morris College of Law. I have been following the ups and downs of the policy debate over marijuana reform in Ohio you know, going back even before I guess it was issue three went down in flames and mm. uh, I've been teaching a class with first of its kind in the nation to law students on marijuana law and policy with a idea that we need great lawyers to help move the industry forward effectively and that the, um, I'm continuing to see the range of legal issues, the range of challenging policy issues in the state and beyond uh, makes me feel extra confident that teaching in this space is the right thing to do. And you've seen uh, increased student interest in the... Oh, there was always student interest. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the legal issues. Of <laughs> when I proposed the class, one of my colleagues accused me of, you're just doing it to be popular with students. So I said, well, I don't mind that they'll sign up for it for sure, but um, you know, what was actually so valuable about teaching in this space is to give them a real appreciation for the depth of the issues uh, on a topic that they're not as intimidated by because they're kind of familiar with it, right? They, you know, whether they debated the issues in their college dorm room or not, they have a feel for the basic policy issues, but they particularly, you know, aren't aware of the challenges of federal prohibition and then state legalization. So to have the topic that we're excited about to introduce those challenges. It's too easy sometimes. Right, right. Well, um, uh, Justin, can you give us just kind of a high-level overview real quick of the, the where you're at mm -hmm. you know, as, as a company and your operation in Zanesville? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Grow Ohio, we have a 60,000-square-foot, um, like I said, level one cultivation facility. And again, but level one is the bigger kind. Level one is the, yeah, the licensees that are authorized to grow up to 25,000-square-foot of cannabis space. Um, and recently, we were the first ever awarded processor license uh, certificate of operation in the state of Ohio. Right. So operational where we are, um, you know, we have continual harvest, kind of the way that we're set up. So we're continuing to harvest plant material. Uh, but with our processing CO coming online, we're now able to manufacture the approved forms in Ohio. So your oils, tinctures, edibles, patches, uh, things of that nature. And, and you have your facility is built and you have crop actually uh 
you know, working now. That's correct. Yeah, we had our, our first harvest was in late January, early February. Okay. Um, so with this license, we'll commit a lot of that to the processing facility to get those products out. Uh, but yeah, our, our facility is operational. Both and the processor with. will be right at the same uh, same spot. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, Andy. How about you? So we uh, we actually went uh, about a slightly different path. Um, we we were the first loser on the cultivation round. Um, so the initial licenses came out, and we placed thirteenth uh, out of out of twelve original licenses. Uh, obviously disappointing, but uh, you know we we felt strongly that. Uh, um, we, we thought we did better, I guess. And uh, after a, a year almost of the day, we had a successful appeal and were awarded a level one cultivation license almost a year later than, than Grow Ohio and, and the other 11 licensees, level one. Sure. Uh, so we're a little bit behind the curve. Um, we're, we're currently in a construction process, building out our, our, uh, our cultivation and processing facility. Um, and it's actually co-located with Apex Supercritical, um, it, we're in, in Johnstown, Ohio, up in the industrial park. Right. So we, uh, we're not quite as far along yet, but uh, we're anticipating coming online in the, uh, in the summertime um, for processing and later in the fall for cultivation. Okay. All right. Great. Um, Mark, how about from the state side, uh, we, where do you think we're at? So we're at a pretty, I think, exciting time uh, from the state perspective because we had the first sales of illegal medical marijuana in the state in mid-January. So that was, you know, the, the law was passed in, in 2016, so there's been a lot of anticipation around this. And, uh, you know, as, as some of the others on the panel, I think, can describe in more detail, it's, it's a pretty arduous process to go even from getting initially awarded your license to becoming operational. And it's a pretty heavily regulated industry in the state of Ohio, and intentionally so. I mean, this is a product that's going into to patients' bodies. So it, it, you know, it took a long time to get there. Uh, patients were, were really excited about it and really anticipating uh, for it. So now we have you know, product available for sale in the state of Ohio. We have nine dispensaries uh, that are open. Uh, I believe there are four cultivators that have product in the market. Uh, we have the first processor now that's coming online. So uh, we are really in the, the very early stages of the industry getting stood up, but it's, uh, it's something brand new, something that, that patients have been, been uh, anticipating. So I think it's a, it's a pretty exciting time for the state. Mm -hmm. uh, and Sandy's kind of same thing as the question for Doug. I mean, you're still seeing interest uh, you know, by clients in, in getting into this somehow. Um, usually in the appellate process, for uh, any licensure issues that may come up. And I want to give Mark's folks a shout out because the Department of Commerce is a very, um, they want to work with everyone. Um, they're very open to an appellate process. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would call it, they've got to be overwhelmed with, with everything that's going through that you know, Department of Commerce right now. But we've had positive experience with um, the Department of Commerce and, and working together in order to look at different issues and try to get them resolved mm -hmm. on the licensure issues. I mean, Mark, how about that? Is overwhelmed the, uh, the right uh, kind of term for what's going on? <laughs> so I think any time you, you stand up a new program in, in state government, it's, it's a big deal and it's a big challenge. Um, in this case, it's, I think, a particularly unique challenge because you're creating a regulatory framework around a new industry and then you layer on top of that all the complexities of a legalized marijuana uh, program, not the least of which is, is the federal status uh, of the legality of marijuana. So it's a really complicated, um, it's a really complicated 
industry to, to stand up. So I think there are a lot of moving parts. Um, we've got, uh, there are four different license types in the state of Ohio. You've got the cultivators who grow the product, the processors who manufacture, as Justin said, the, the finished products. Uh, you've got the testing labs, which are really a critical element of our program because, again, this is product that's going into to human bodies uh, for consumption, and we need to make sure that both uh, in terms of, of any contaminants, whether it's pesticides or anything else, that, that we're protecting people, but also that people understand, because they're taking this for, for healthcare purposes, that they understand what it is that they're getting and, and, and finding the right product for them. So the testing labs are critical. And then uh, our partner agency, the, the State Pharmacy Board, regulates the dispensaries as well. So there are a lot of moving parts. Uh, it's something that, that we want to get right because for the healthcare purposes that, that we talked about, you know, our main purpose is protecting the public, protecting public health and safety. And so um, there's a, there are a lot of moving pieces to, to get in place. But, you know, again, to the earlier point, you've gone from over the course of two years really words on a page um, that, that right. were drafted to now living, breathing businesses that are functioning living, breathing patients that are able to walk into a dispensary and, and buy this product and, and see some relief. So the pace has been an interesting you know, question. I, you know, I, I agree. It's, uh, uh, you know, to go from nothing to where we are is, is certainly an accomplishment, perhaps, uh, uh, Justin and, and Andy. Uh, what do you think about the, the pace of how everything is going? You know, I think given the 119 process and everything that goes into awarding these high Moving along at a good pace. I mean, they're doing a good job of addressing when the hearings are and getting those done. Um, on the industry side, um, you know, there are a lot of approvals. You know, you're required to get packaging approved, product ID approved. Um, yeah. And you know, from the industry perspective, we've really seen that kind of move in the right direction as more licensees are coming online. Uh, so that's not holding up operations. Okay. Andy, how about the 119 process is the appeals of rejected cultivator applicants who then go through an administrative appeal trying to get awarded the license? Sure. Andy? So I, I don't think there's a, a single patient in the state of Ohio that would uh, agree that the, the process has gone quickly uh, sure. or even satisfactorily uh, at a pace. It's been a very long time. Um, it's tons of reasons why, right? And right. you know, there's, it, it is a very involved, complicated process. We want to make sure we get it right. It's not that unusual compared to other states for it to, to go a little bit slower. But you know, compare and contrast to you know Pennsylvania, our neighbors who, who legalized almost the same time we did. You know, they're a year, a year and a half ahead of us. Um, so it can be done faster. Uh, that being said, you know, we we haven't uh, haven't necessarily. Um, experience some of the other process problems that uh, other states have experienced with oversupply or, or what I would call, you know, much looser programs. Mm -hmm. uh, a most recent one is Oklahoma. If you take a look at, you know, Oklahoma's uh, recent licensing process, they just said pretty much, here you go. You know, you, you submit your name, and as long as you're not a felon for the last 10 years, you can get a license. And, you know, they issued a significant number of licenses all at the same time. You're talking about uh, grower and, I mean, like, not just dispensaries, but actual yeah, yeah, growing yeah. the whole it's thing. Yeah, part of their program. It's, it's a little more complicated than that. But, the, you know, the point is that every state uh, kind of seems to still want to do it differently, even right. today. Um, and, and Ohio did it a little bit differently. Uh, and it caused some problems. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're up, we're running. Uh, medicine is available to the patients. Right. But it really, you know, I think if there were some patients sitting at this roundtable, they probably wouldn't agree that it's been fast enough. Sure, sure. 
Doug, I mean, do you look at this, uh, Ohio versus other states? Yeah, all the time, and, and that's among the things that we're trying to do in a new center we have at, at the law school, the Drug Enforcement and Policy Center, is to try to drill down. Andy you know, mentioned Pennsylvania, which is sort of started at the same time and, and moved quickly ahead relative to Ohio's pace. And among the things we'll be looking at in, you know, in the next couple of years is, did that make a difference, you know, getting uh, online faster? Did it lead to a less effective regulatory scheme? And was Ohio's approach ideal? There really is, and he was suggesting in a variety of ways, there's no best practices in this space, right? And that's where Mark and his team are really, all the different licensing boards here, you have so little to go on in terms of, oh, you know, this worked, this didn't, right? Yeah, right. The Oklahoma experiment is an interesting one because that was done by ballot initiative. And I get the sense that the state regulators there were just like, well, everybody wants this, so just go for it and we won't worry too much if it doesn't work out because it's kind of not our fault, right? The voters. Yeah, yeah. So, um, there is an incredible variation across the country over time. And one of the things that's really interesting and something that worries me as an academic and as a researcher is people aren't paying much attention in the academy to the medical marijuana states. You know, the recreational states are the shiny object. And so everybody studying Colorado and now California and all these big states that have come on with full adult use. And those are important stories to follow. And we may get to a point where that's a story here in Ohio. But I think there are, and our center is going to be trying to look at a ton of really interesting stories in the medical marijuana space that, that um, I'm excited, among other things, that Ohio has been as transparent as it can be about the process, about the data that we're starting to generate as the program comes online. And that's another sort of element of the challenge is different states have been tracking different data, have been reporting different data at different times, even deciding what's the appropriate data. I think Andy's point is a great one vis-a-vis -vis patients. Very few states have even followed up with patient experiences, right, to really get a sense of whether patients are satisfied with how the program is put together, whether they think it's too much regulatory costs, whether the expense is too much for certain patient classes. Mm -hmm. right. There really isn't the kind of study of, you know, both developed and starting programs that, that um, you know, it's one of the reasons I wanted to start the center to try to fill that gap, but it's a challenge because they're moving in real time and there's so many dimensions. Uh, another way to say it is there's so many different constituencies that have opinions on whether it's going too fast or too slow, what they think is important in the program. The patient advocates want it as quickly as possible, as cheaply as possible, but also as dependable as possible, and those aren't always consistent. Right. Doug, I do want to add, too, during this period, there was an administrative change. Um, and for the I was in government for 20 years. And when there's an administrative change, things usually come to a halt because okay. there's being, being an assessment of the current folks in those positions. Is that the right person in that seat? Do we need to move that person? And plus, coming up, getting um, up to date on all the issues that are out there. So I think that the state, that the Department of Commerce and, has done a great job with keeping the balls moving down the court um, while this assessment's taking place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Mark, we were talking uh, earlier this morning. I mean, Doug mentioned best practices, but it seemed like Ohio is trying to prevent the worst practices, right? I mean, you don't want, from the state's perspective, you don't want to become California. It's kind of the, the, the needle that you're trying to thread there. Yeah, I think there's there's no doubt that when you look at, at the way different states have approached it, there are a couple of different elements. One of it is, as Doug said, th there's not a... There's not a roadmap out there in terms of, of best practices, and, there's, and, and Andy touched on it as well. Many of the things, the challenges that Ohio ran into are challenges that, that other states have had too. There's not a state 
you know, that, that pitched a perfect game on this. You know, mm -hmm. it, 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 for all of the reasons that I mentioned earlier, it's a challenging industry and a challenging re regulatory framework to set up, and every state has had those challenges. But the other piece of it is every state has different cultures. And so, you know, I think that even if there were a program that had been implemented smoothly in, in a state like California, you wouldn't necessarily see the policymakers in Ohio mm -hmm want to model that exactly. They want to have a program that reflects Ohio's values. And so we've been uh, focused around being patient-centered, which to us means you know, trying to get, it, get access as quickly and as, as efficiently as possible. But also, you know, at any decision point juncture that, that we make, our priority is going to be patient health and safety public safety, and so that, that's, that's the, the, the operating principle around our framework, and, and there's trade-offs to that. You know, Doug talked about um, we want to, to be up and running as quickly as possible. We want to improve access as much as possible, but never at the expense of, of, of patient safety or, or, or community and public safety. Carrie, you want to? Sure. Uh, so, we have two Ohio-owned companies here, and the, the, there's an interesting mix of your more multi-state players like Cresco Labs and, uh, and Ohio-grown therapies is hybrid, local ownership, but bringing in uh, a Hawaiian expert in the industry. I'm not sure what the situation is with mm -hmm. Grow Ohio, but I know the ownership comes from uh, the topsoil and renewable energy business. So how did they get into... I know what brought Andy into cannabis was lavender processors out in California. <laughs> uh, but how, how did the Kurtz family get into this business? And since their main businesses are based in Northeast Ohio near Cleveland, mm -hmm. why settle in the Zanesville area? So a couple of questions. I think the, <clears throat> the first is, how did we get into this space? How did the Kurtz family and the other owners get into this space? You know, it, it's a highly regulated industry, like Mark uh, referenced. And so operating in other highly regulated industries gives you a feel for how to operate your business, how to propose a business model that works, and how to propose a business model that's regulatorily compliant. And so that was a big piece of it for them, and, and kind of how that translated from the renewable energy and the materials handling space over to medical marijuana. Um, as far as location, you know, obviously when applicants were looking to apply, you needed to make sure, obviously, you were 500 feet away from a prohibited facility. You needed to do other certain things, making sure that you could get the appropriate approvals to operate. And so a lot of that led the ownership group. Uh, there were some families, some long history ties to the area of Zanesville. Um, and so to look for a space there. Um, also, you know, bringing a company that could offer employment opportunities and looking for talent in, in an area of the state uh, where it was, you know, much needed. So uh, when you bring all that together, I think that's how the, the three owners kind of settled on Muskingum County right outside of Zanesville, and here's why we can make this operation work. And, and Kira, I'd, I'd imagine, much like Grow Ohio, you know, they had a relationship with the local municipality. Right, and that's that's just absolutely critical. You know, there's there's still a lot of fear of the marijuana boogeyman out there, mm -hmm. uh, and unless there's a trust that's been developed, in generally prior to any kind of marijuana conversations between a local business or a local business owner and the municipality, um, it's really hard for for a new group, a new entity, new area, to to not think that there's some kind of ulterior motive or there's there you know that community's best interests aren't in mind. 
So, you know, for us with Johnstown, I'm sure it was the same with you guys yeah. out there in Zanesville. We had already developed a relationship. And so being able to, to encourage them to take advantage of the economic development opportunities uh, that were available or were going to become available in the marijuana industry, that trust had to already be there. So that drove, I think, a lot of the, the locations uh, for the medical marijuana operators. Mm -hmm. Johnstown in particular has been very open to this and encouraging. And I, I think you would express that you almost felt like you were letting the city down, you know, not intentionally, but when, when the first cultivation application was denied. Because they, they had several applicants, and for a while nothing assigned there. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So we had, we had four. So Johnstown's a community of about 5,000 people. Uh, and we had four of the uh, of the cultivation licenses or application um, submitted, and you know one, I don't know. There's there's probably 28, uh, probably 200 acre uh, industrial park area had four of the applications. So and it came as a result of Johnstown being extremely proactive, almost a year in, in advance of the application period being open. Um, they they announced, <coughs> hey, we're we're not going to put some kind of a moratorium or a ban in place, right? At the same time, there were you know almost a, a, a quarter to a third of the state were covered by bans or moratoriums of some shape or another, they were the first ones to come out and came out way early to say, we're not going to, right? Bring your business here, we welcome it. Uh, and I mean, it, it really came as a result of me spending the time to educate them on what Apex Supercritical does, right? So, you know, even though we didn't touch the plant, we had to build a, a manufacturing facility in the industrial park in Johnstown. So we were having that conversation way back in 2014. That opened their eyes, got them you know, comfortable with the situation, helped them understand and develop a relationship. Um, I remember when, uh, Professor Berman, when you started the center, one of the quotes in the story I wrote, which I reread, I, I don't remember it this long, I reread it yesterday. <laughs> Very impressive. Uh, but you said, you know, there's so many questions to ask. We don't know how many jobs will be created in this space, and will they be good jobs? So shooting that over here, I'd like to know what your research is showing you so far, but Muskingum mm -hmm. County has mm -hmm. a 7.2% unemployment rate, mm -hmm. you know, more than double the mm -hmm. state as a whole. Mm -hmm. Are these creating, I mean, because maybe a cultivation facility only needs a dozen people, I, I don't really know. So how yeah. many jobs are being created? Are they good jobs? Mm -hmm. And are you spurring ancillary businesses around there? Yeah, another great question. Um, yeah, I can tell you it's going to vary by cultivation facility or processing facility. Uh, some are a little bit more hands-on, whereas some owners will take the automated approach. Um, at Grow Ohio, we, we hire the staff to do it. And so we have a pretty large staff from the area. Right now, to date, I think we're at 74 employees, and we expect that number to grow to roughly 110 by the end of the year. Uh, a majority of them are dedicated to security and to cultivation. Uh, obviously, those are two of the biggest things and the most important things at the facility. Um, and as far as the level of jobs, I mean, when you're able to bring a company that provides health benefits to, to the families uh, and then a way to advance, you know, kind of what we're doing right off the bat is bringing people in, let's uh, teach them, let's cross-train them, and then as we develop an organizational structure, start to promote from within. So. You know, I can't speak to the dollar figures or what it means from a dollar figure standpoint, but from a quality of life and bringing in people for work, um, it's been very positive for us. Let Andy speak for his company. Yeah, so we, uh, you know, we're, again, we're in, still in the earlier stages and don't have our operational permits. We're still in construction process. Uh, so really all I can talk to is projections at this point. But, you know, we're projecting somewhere between 50 and 60 employees. But um, with, with somewhat of a shared structure, certainly in the beginning of uh, some of the Apex supercritical overhead activities, administrative functions, things like that. So we get to, to kind of piggyback and share those uh, to, to be a little bit more um, financially um, uh, sensitive, I guess is probably the best way to say it. 
But you know, one one thing to note the the interest, the level of interest in from from the local community and and, and just uh, people in the in the surrounding areas for these cannabis related jobs has been phenomenal. I mean, almost zero advertising, and we get a ton of applications. You know. At, Compare and contrast to Apex Supercritical, where we've got a, a lot of skilled fabricators, uh, and especially engineers. Those guys are hard to find, and we've got to pay recruiters and, and, and to put in a lot of effort just to find qualified applicants. The cannabis industry has been almost the exact opposite. Has your research shown anything so far about quality of employment? <coughs> no, it hasn't yet, and the problem is, to a large extent, that the economic development piece of marijuana reform has been largely... I would say understudied, but also we don't have the usual uh, statistical uh, generators, right? This is another piece that's often underappreciated <coughs> about federal prohibition, right? The Bureau of Labor Statistics, which really is the sort of the nation's leading calculator of jobs in different industries and keeps track of wages in those industries, they don't have a cannabis piece to it. Interestingly, uh, about a year and a half ago, they hinted that they were going to maybe start including that, and I don't know if there was uh, kind of a signal from above that we ought not track that, in part because if you read some of the trade publications, the number's so high, right? They've, they've, uh, I've seen the most recent statistic I saw was 211,000 jobs nationwide in the industry, and that compares to something like 50,000 coal miners, right? And so, you know, when we think about, you know, a, a range of other industries that are in decline, but that, you know, the current administration and others don't want to allow to fade away, mostly for political reasons, and then you compare that to where we are with cannabis, and of course that's with only, you know, really 25 or so states online with serious programs, right? A few states with medical programs aren't really sort of fully engaged, and obviously Ohio is an example of another state that has potential for growth, and that's been, I'm actually <coughs> working on a paper to try to bring together what we've seen in some of the literature and some of the state-by-state -state reports um, about you know what we're seeing in terms of economic development, but it's a hard thing to track, especially things like uh, not just you know level of wages and benefits that come you know important parts of employee satisfaction, what we what we consider a good job, uh, but people moving in and out of the industry too, right? I mean, it's the type of thing that I don't know if this is Andy's experience. My sense is there's a fair number of people who are real excited about the idea of being in the industry candidly for the wrong reasons, right? You know, oh, I'll get paid in product, and so that's a great thing to do, right? And then <laughs> when they find out that's not how it works, and in fact, um, you know, it's a real job like every other job, they're not as excited about it, right? And so it's challenging both to get just basic data and then to do the more sophisticated studies. And this is where, you know, my biggest refrain, again, it's part of why we started the center, is I think the federal government has really dropped the ball on these sets of issues, even if there was a commitment to federal prohibition at the federal level, and I'm looking really back to the Obama administration, they could have been starting to collect some decent data on a variety of these fronts because we don't even have any baseline to work off of. We don't have a real uh, set of metrics on some of the you know public health and public safety issues that are uh, obviously critical to understanding how we're doing here. But these economic development issues are ones that are really challenging for me sitting in my office to study, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics does systematic reviews, calls employee, you know, employers and employees to really find out what's going on there. And so far, they've been a been a blank in this space. We'll see if that changes anytime soon. Interestingly, there was a federal bill uh, last year that was about let's just get the data, uh, but that went nowhere either, right? Because the politics of this is still so kind of encrusted with you know the history of prohibition, and I think there's a sense that any move forward 
um, from some quarters seems like a, a, a blessing on the industry, and there's a you know a significant number of folks, mostly uh, you know on the GOP side, that don't want to even send that signal. I mean, as far as the federal debt, not to put too fine a point on it, but they they just they pretending that this just doesn't exist. Like it's an underground economy; it's illegal, and so they're not going to. Pretty much, yes. I mean, I, I struggle to find any federal documents. In fact, that's kind of what I do occasionally. Is like, oh, here's a new federal report on whether it's criminal justice issues, which is my kind of main area, or right. economic development issues, and you know, control F marijuana or cannabis, and you come up blank because they just don't want to talk about these matters. Partially because they're not studying it in the same kind of systematic way, and partially because um, I think there's a there's a a, a kind of disinclination. Uh, to even legitimate what's going on by studying it in any way, which I think is just you know so backward and 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 frustrating, but you know the nature of the times we're living in still. And I think and you, you're bringing up the central question that we'd really like to get at is that the same reason people are really interested in this area is the same reason we have no visibility into this area. So we're we're bringing are we. Are we just bringing existing activity onto the books out of the black market? Are we creating a new consumer base that never was here before? So when we talk about 50, 60 jobs or 70 jobs in Muskingum County, uh, I'm glad you brought the comparison to coal miners nationwide. Um, is, this make, is this really a significant part of the economy or is it a bunch of small businesses? You know, is this really going to be a major industry or are we just interested in it because, you know, it's titillating? So there were, there's a, a, a good article that came out uh, a couple weeks ago that talked about, you know, voter, uh, voter preferences. Uh, and, and very, very few people, some small percentage, 10, 15 percent, make decisions on who they're going to vote for based on their cannabis platforms. Right? So people will generally vote for who they want to vote for because of whatever's really important to them. And how they feel about cannabis doesn't influence voting. Right, and and that's that's kind of the way that the um, the, the cannabis industry is is continued to evolve. It's important to you know a small subset of people, um, but it's exciting. It's new. It's 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 flashy, right? Uh, and it's coming in the underground, and, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of um, unsubstantiated anecdotal information that gets people excited. Uh, but you know, it, it is also a force to be reckoned with, right? So the cannabis industry, the legal cannabis industry as a whole, was 12 to 13 billion dollars last year, projected to be 20 to 30 billion by 2022. Um, you know, it's it's not going to take over oil and gas, for instance. But by the same token, it, it's absolutely a, a force to 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 recognize uh, and deal with. Um, how much of the black market is going to convert into the, the legal market? Um, that's still a question that uh, hopefully Doug can answer at some point in time in the relatively near future. Um, but, you know, people like my mom, for instance, you know, she's not a convert from the black market, right? And, but she's just as interested in medical marijuana and what it can do for her arthritis as, you know, lots of her friends are. So, you know, there's, there's definitely opportunities to, to serve the patients here that hasn't been there in the past. And, uh, you know, that's the thing I think we need to keep at the forefront. Adding to the economic impact, uh, Andy mentioned, and you asked about the ancillary businesses. And kind of one of the things that was surprising to me to see is the number of people that are either all in, you know, we're going to go into this space, or we're not going to touch it at all. So I'm referring to the different banks. I'm referring to, you know, CO2 suppliers. I'm referring to lighting manufacturers. Uh, so from an economic standpoint and a local impact, 
I think there will need to be some clarity around things at the federal level with respect to banking or with respect to other regulations that they may be uh, subject to. So that kind of has slowed things, in my opinion. But once we start to see movement there, you'll start to see more local businesses involved on the supply side contributing to these medical marijuana entities. And I think you'll see a big impact. But when that happens, you know, that's kind of anybody's best guess, just like when the federal government will change their stance on that. So pricing has been an issue. Uh, you know, I've been tracking it with a big spreadsheet every week. Um, and uh, what Ohio defines as a one-day supply costs about $47. The same amount in Michigan pricing would be about $30. So I know you said there's only about four that are actively harvesting. We have the one processor. <coughs> when do we expect the supply demand to, to more normalize and maybe those prices come down and does it actually eliminate the black market? And, and I mean, should it be competing only on price with the black market? Or you know, for folks like Andy's mom who really want that legitimacy around the, the medical issue? Is that for me? Sure. <laughs> I'm staring at you. Um, you know, I, I do think the, the pricing issue points out something that I think is, is maybe obvious to all of us, but maybe is, is, is not as well known, but is, is worth saying. Um, to the, to the broader public is this is an industry run by, by private businesses, right? It, it, it's heavily regulated, and um, they're awarded licenses from the state, but they are ultimately private, private businesses. Um, the pricing, uh, like other issues, are, are things that we've seen in other states. Uh, we do expect, I mean, we have, um, you know, 40 licensed processors, one currently operational. We have uh, 29 licensed cultivators, 16 that are that are actively growing, um, 56 licensed dispensaries, nine that are open. So it is very much still a fledgling market, and and we do expect, as we've seen in other states, to see those prices normalize over time. Um, I think there's probably people on the panel who are better able than I to answer the question about the degree to which. Um, the regulated medical market is going to compete with and take business from the illegal market. Um, I think that's a, that, you know, there are some questions there about whether that's even the intent of the program um, and, and how those price factors will, will drive people one direction or the other. Obviously, the fact that you have to have a, a medical card and a recommendation from a licensed doctor in the state right there. Is a, is a delineating factor between the medical program and, and the illegal market. And there, there are certainly pl plenty of people um, who may want access to, to marijuana for other purposes. And you have, as, as Doug has talked about, other states that have gone to a more uh, adult use model. So you know, I think others can, can weigh in on that fact. But I, I do think in terms of the medical program only, throughout the course of this year, we will really start to see, you know, more companies operating, even the companies that, that are operating at a higher volume, more, more regional dispersion, particularly on the, on the dispensary side, that, that will increase access to patients, more competition. And I think you know, we do expect to see prices normalize at, at that point. But again, this is, this is not, um, not inconsistent with, with what we've seen in other states. But, but you know, to Andy's point about the timing earlier, doesn't mean it's not frustrating to patients. 
I'll just add to that from, you know, there's two schools of thought. You mentioned it, quality and price Mm -hmm. as a consumer. And I think Ohio is set up in such a way that for those looking for quality, this is absolutely going to be a viable and thriving market for them. They're going to have access to information, not only on the compliance labels, but also what we're putting out there as far as in-house research or what the different strains can do. And the dispensaries are going to be well-equipped to have people on hand that understand the benefits of the different products or the different strains. So I think for the quality folks, you'll see a big shift. Um, As far as price, it's always going to be difficult to compete with the black market, you know, especially when you have indoor grows that take up a lot of electricity. You have, you know, testing costs and just operational costs. That's going to be very difficult. I think that will be a huge challenge. But hopefully, to Mark's point, as more people come online and the demand and the supply kind of level out, you'll see that price drop significantly enough where it's now makes more sense for even the price consumers to look to the medical program or what's next in Ohio. Um, one thing I'll add, and I, I see this as a challenge in the industry, is you know, for Andy, uh, you know, it's fortunate to have full vertical integration. You're kind of hearing that patient feedback on products, what's good, what isn't good, what's helping me treat this. Um, we really need to focus in on how that information can be more widely available to the cultivators and the processors so that changes can be made to the products or you know, the products can evolve with the consumer demand. So I think that's a, a big focus and something I know I will be prioritizing. I'm sure other cultivators and processors will be too. So this question is for anyone, but especially our legal minds. What's your over-under on either federal uh, legalization or Ohio going for recreational ahead of the feds? And does this whole Swiss watch the state has built collapse in that case? all the money that you've put into this highly regulated mm-hmm. business go to waste because it's anyone, any, anything goes? Or is that not what would happen if we... Well, I'll speak to the, the federal issue first. Um, there's been several legislation that's been proposed on the Hill that didn't go anywhere. But as we find that more states um, are permitting medical marijuana and also recreational, you have more state representatives, you have more congressmen on the Hill who are now looking at it totally differently because how can they vote against it when it's in their own state? So there's been recent legislation proposed again in order to um, deregulate uh, marijuana as a Schedule Mm One. We'll see where that goes as more states come on board. I'm thinking it'll go a little bit further if not deregulating it. Um, how long, how soon that would happen, there's no, there's no telling. But I think that it's going to get more movement than it has in the past. Yeah, Doug, speak, what do you think? Yeah, I'll speak to this issue with, with uh, you know, a sort of set of vector forces in play. Uh, it seems like all the Democratic candidates for president are talking about full marijuana legalization. In all likelihood, one of them will be taking on President Trump. It's possible that President Trump on the campaign trail might express his support for the States Act, which is the, the legislation that seems to have the most political viability, which just says basically federal law is whatever state law is, and so it doesn't require the states that still <coughs> prohibited to come on board with legalization, but allows the states, if they have a medical regime, if they have a full adult use regime, that's legal under federal law. And I could imagine a world where... Trump wins re-election and the power he has over the GOP, plus that promise to be committed to the States Act, could get it done, you know, in the period from, you know, 2021 before, you know, he's done. I actually think that's more likely than if a Democrat wins on a campaign of 
legalization, that they can get that through Congress in a particular form. And here I'm building a little bit off of some of the struggles we've been seeing in New Jersey and New York, where we have governors sort of fully supportive of full legalization, and then the fight mostly within the Democratic Party is, oh, it should look like this, no, it should look like that, no, we should have these carve-outs or these benefits from the program, and that grinds the legislative process to a halt. And in, in a way, I think President Trump has the most potential to kind of get the GOP along if he's invested in that, whether he will be, whether he'll address this issue, you know, up against the Democratic opponent <clears throat> remains to be seen. But that strikes me as really the only path to getting this done uh, in, in the near future nationwide. In Ohio, I've been telling everybody who wants to listen, and even some who don't, uh, I'm expecting to see a full legalization ballot initiative in 2020. Uh, there's sort of too much money and excitement over this, not just in the state, but nationwide. Uh, there's the opportunity to complain about how slow things have been, right? So there's a kind of, that opens a, a, a campaign talking point. And then the big question, especially as it relates to, to the folks already <coughs> in the area, is how good the ballot drafters do at co-opting, in a sense, the folks who have already invested all this time and energy. Uh, in fact, that's sort of the backstory. California has the first full legalization initiative back in 2010. Uh, and that fails largely because all the medical marijuana providers say, oh, this is a bad deal for us. We hate this. Be against this. This will make everything worse. Boo, 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 and it barely fails, in part because um, the existing industry is adamantly opposed to basically being crushed under complete reform. <clears throat> the drafters of Colorado's initiative and Washington's initiative sort of learned from that and tried to co-op the existing medical industry, saying that the folks who had licenses would be the first ones with authority to open full rec programs. I think of a ballot initiative is well constructed uh, to uh, get folks in the medical system to be excited, to support it. Among the pitches will be this will drive down costs because we'll have more availability and so on. Um, it, it could make for an interesting campaign, but it's, it's, it's hard to put that together, right? And um, presumably um, our statewide leaders would be adamantly against it and campaign hard against it like they did with issue three, like they did with issue one on drug sentencing reform. And so whether that actually prevails um, is an interesting question, even though you know the statistics show you know 55 to 60 percent uh, across the country and probably in Ohio are supportive of full legalization. The particulars end up mattering, especially the particulars of who shows up to vote, right? And so uh, that'll be a big part. But I'm I, I'd be surprised if we're not voting on it in 2020. Mm -hmm. I am not predicting how it will come out until I see what gets to the ballot. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I mean, it's recreational is inevitable. I mean, it, it's going to happen. There's no question. It's 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 a win, not an if, in my opinion. Uh, certainly here in Ohio, um, federally, that's that's a whole different ballgame. I I don't think you're going to see a federal legalization. I think you're going to see a punt, just as as Doug described there, where you know it's we don't care. You do what you want, kind of situation. Um, the the real question in my mind is, will the legislature decide to take control of it the same way they had this this real strong desire to take control of the medical program? Um, and that, that's the piece that I've, I really just, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble putting my finger on it. You know, a piece of me says, well, you know, they didn't, they didn't do the best job of putting the program together uh, in the first place, so, you know, are they going to try to put their, their necks out and do it again? Or are they going to sit back and let a, a group like MPP or somebody like that put together a ballot initiative? Um, you know, the challenge with a ballot initiative is going to have home grow, right? In order to get the, the million or so people that voted for issue three, 
um, to, to vote again is it's going to have home grow, right? And what do you say when you, you know, now there's a whole bunch of home grow going on, um, you know, and from a regulatory standpoint? How are you going to manage all of these different home grows, even if they're small? Um, there's, there's a bunch of it there. So that's some of the, the push and pull that I think we're going to see here uh, next year. Does it terrify me from what perspective? Business perspective. All, all the money you put into this. And no, not at all. Um, and, and because, you know, there, there has to be some flexibility, right? I mean, we can't just sit here. You know, issue three failed because it was a monopoly, right? right? Uh, or, you know, oligopoly or whatever the heck those guys want to call it. I don't care. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it was a monopoly. It was a, it was a total greedy grab from a business standpoint where they tried to lock up the market for themselves. And it, it was a greed play. And, you know, thank God it didn't pass. I feel the exact same way here in the, in the in, you know, the medical to recreational transition. Does it scare me? I mean, it, it creates some risk, sure. Uh, but the idea that I can sit here and, and, and you know, not let the, the will of the people of the state of Ohio right, come to fruition because I've got a, a significant investment in my medical marijuana operation, it's just absurd. It's not a, it's not a sustainable way to run a business. So you know, I, I, I welcome it and look to see you know, how we can work with it. You know, there's still always going to be a medical program. Almost every state has maintained a medical program, some better than others. Uh, and you know, the patients generally um, have economic situations that, that you know, would create lower taxes, where the recreational program can have higher taxes and, and those kind of things. So they can, they can really work together. And, and that's the way I look at it. Um, wanted, oh, go ahead. I was just going to add, not, not in the legal mind, but as someone who's read a lot on the subject, I don't think the recreational is going to be a, to have too much of an effect on the medical for the reason that the medical is so closely controlled. And if I, for one, was going to take medical marijuana, I would want it to be that way. I'd want to go through my doctor. I'd want to make sure I'm taking the right dosages. I think the folks that would be growing it recreationally, legally, are doing it now illegally anyway. And I would not want to buy something on the street that, that I don't know what's in it. Um, you know, Mark knows how highly regulated, and these guys know as cultivators how highly regulated it is. Um, and you're not going to buy antibiotics at a farmer's market. Right. Right. <laughs> I, I, think that, I think you're going to have both. How quickly do you guys get out of the medical marijuana business and into recreational if, it, if a law passes? Do you abandon one for the other, or do you go both? I mean, I think that all depends on the, the legislative, how it looks. Right. I mean, is it a situation where if you have a medical cultivator's license, you're grandfathered into the recreational space? Um, well, then, yeah, I think you would pursue that. But if it's a separate license, does it make sense with your business model and how you're currently growing uh, to pursue that license? And, yeah, and then the other restrictions that rec would have versus the medical market. So th there are just too many unanswered, or too many unanswered uh, questions or things that would remain undone that we would need to know. Um, I wanted to comment on Ohio's status with recreational, and Andy hit it on the head, and Mark alluded to it. You know, the landscape before House Bill 523 came was pretty different. The, we just, the ballot initiative failed narrowly. Um, you know, when we rolled out the program, there was an administration change. And so there are a lot of factors at play that with the, even with the successful medical market, you're still going to have those people that were interested in that ballot initiative or bringing recreational to Ohio uh, that are, I think, hungry to do that. So that was the only comment I had to add on when will Ohio go rec versus when the federal government. I wanted to shift direction a little bit to employment law. Yay. Uh, <laughs> so 
on the one hand, uh, patients are vulnerable. They, they can still be fired, even if they have this doctor's recommendation. The Ohio law does not protect them in that regard. On the other hand, I'm hearing anecdotally that uh, especially construction companies are so desperate to hire workers they're forgoing drug tests altogether. So what is the real situation on the ground and what's the real status of, of patients uh, for, for their uh, safety of their, their job security? Uh, well, the medical marijuana control program leaves that up to the employers. Mm -hmm. um, there's no set Employment Fair Labor Standards Act or anything. Uh, the uh, American with Disabilities Act does not protect uh, marijuana as, as a, a drug for uh, folks with disabilities. The employer is still required to accommodate uh, someone who is ADA. However, it does not have to be medical marijuana. Um, you are correct that we foresee that if employers stay with a drug-free environment policy, strict policy, they may find hiring um, an issue and keeping good folks that may currently be an employee but then start using medical marijuana. Um, marijuana can stay in your system for several days, um, even though you may not be taking it today, but I took it yesterday and I'm at work today. If you choose to test, you you can be found to have medical marijuana, have marijuana in your system. So I think employers, employers are going to have to look at it big picture, maybe um, maybe carve out certain job responsibilities that would be permissive of the use, but others such as warehouse uh, forklift operators or somebody who drives a company car um, prohibit it, continue to prohibit the usage. I think it's going to have to be um, a, on a case-by-case -case basis with each, each employer. I think that's one of the, uh, the, the single most biggest failure points of our program uh, was not protecting patients and their ability to continue in the workplace, right? It's, you know, if a, if a patient takes opioids, we don't fire them. Yet if they take medical marijuana, we fire them, right? I mean, and that's, that's the situation. That failure point, uh, I think, is one of the things that are going to drive the recreational ballot in 2020. And that'll be a piece that's addressed on it without question. Well, and it's interesting to compare Ohio to some other states where there is more protection for patients built into either a ballot initiative or their legislation. And there's been, for about six or seven years of this sort of modern medical marijuana era, any time an employee who was fired would challenge their firing, they'd lose almost categorically, you know, it's just prohibited by federal law, sorry, you're out. But in the last two or three years, there have been significant rulings Connecticut, Massachusetts in particular, I have in mind, where the courts have been more willing to say, hey, there's nothing in the marijuana law that doesn't say you still get protection under our anti-discrimination laws or under some of our other uh, employee protection laws. And so we're seeing just as the country as a whole is sort of moving towards you know, a much more nuanced uh, openness uh, to marijuana reform, courts are less resistant to claims by employees the setting can matter a lot, right? So this is a variation of Sandy's theme. You know, if somebody who's driving a truck every day were to come in and say, you can't fire me, that, that would, you know, be a problem. But I think, I'm thinking it was maybe the Connecticut case where it was a woman who was applying for a job and they had the drug testing, you know, kind of at the start of the application process. And, you know, she was said, oh, I used it, you know, four days ago before I was even sure I was getting an interview. And uh, the court was like, yeah, I think you've gone too far in not allowing this person to move forward in the application process. And so um, I don't expect Ohio courts, again, because our law is written in a way to be unprotective of employees and protective of employers to have rulings like that in the short term. But it's 
another one of those areas, and Andy put his finger on it exactly right, <clears throat> if there were advocates for marijuana reform who were deeply invested in making a medical program as robust as it can be, <coughs> they'd be out there campaigning on this issue and trying to move the legislature to provide at least some more employee protections. But my sense is that energy is going to be focused on let's get a recreational campaign going, let's work on other issues because you know that's that's where we want to end up anyway, and that's kind of a different variation of, of Andy's point about this is inevitable, right? Those forces are in place, and one of the things just to add on about Ohio, come 2020 or you know subsequent years, <clears throat> the full rec national organizations, marijuana policy project in particular, is running out of states to run ballot campaigns. They've won most places, and Ohio is on their list of, you know, kind of a big win that they would like to get and that they think is possible. And so, um, you know, whether it's their money specifically, whether it's other folks in the state that, that work with them, um, you know, there, there aren't that many other places, probably Arizona and maybe Florida. Florida, their initiatives require 60 percent, so they may not go after that, thinking they can't get that uh, level of support. Uh, at this stage, but you know, Ohio sort of out there from the national groups is one worth going after. And again, these sort of employment issues, others are good ones to emphasize is, hey, it's not a real medical program because you're, you're not protected taking your medicine. I love hearing Mark talk about patients. If we treated them like patients, they wouldn't be subject to termination for accessing medicine. Um, I'm wondering how wide the ripples can extend from this industry. So. We've got a Cleveland area insurance company that's been insuring uh, cannabis industry in other states, and I see its name on a lot of the application packets that I review, so that's CanAssure. Um, I don't know if any processors in Ohio are using Apex equipment, if you're, you're, if you're actually selling in your own state now. Mm -hmm. um, there's a LED light designer in Columbus that I know one cultivator is using. But just how, how much more business is this industry generating for the light makers, the filter makers, the greenhouse builders, the anything you could name? Is this, is this a big, one of those multiplier effects that you hear from economic impact studies? Definitely. I, you know, I think, as, as Justin touched on, the, the ancillary businesses uh, that benefit from it, uh, aren't necessarily that first level ancillary, right? You know, the, the guys that are providing lights and greenhouses and extraction equipment, we're already in it, right? I mean, there's, there's, that industry is kind of established um, and it's been around and it's been in the 30 some odd medical states and the, you know, nine or 10 recreational states. It's here. And, you know, those, those folks, those players are, are pretty well established. Not that there aren't new ones showing up, like Specgrade, for instance, the, the, the local LED light supplier. Um, so there's always new ones, but a lot of those those kind of first level ancillary providers have, have already established themselves. I think where you're seeing the the ripple effect, the opportunities, is in in more of the local economies. So you know, places to eat lunch, um, you know, with with 70 new employees out there in Zaneville and you know 50 or 60 here in Johnstown, just having some place to go and eat breakfast, go and eat lunch, doctors, uh, you know, print places, the you know packaging, and and it's all of these 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 second and third level um, support groups or ancillary. Uh, uh, opportunities or businesses that, that can find themselves supporting through um, a, a, 
how do we say, a roundabout mechanism, not necessarily providing lights and extraction equipment. That's, that's where the opportunities are, and I think that's where we're already seeing some of those effects in Johnstown, for sure. Um, I, I don't know if you guys are seeing it out there in Zanesville, but I would imagine so. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the first questions you ask about equipment is lead time. So whenever you can find a local uh, company that can provide things, and you don't have to worry about the nine days, the 14 days, the 21 days, um, you're going to jump at those opportunities to form those relationships and get your products through them. You know, every day we're looking at the lighting in our rooms. How, like, how long does a light last? Is there a better way to get that locally? And we've already found a local distributor to get them um, a better light at a better price. So it, it, we're always looking for ways to tie in local companies, local, um, when I say local, not just in Zanesville, in Ohio, um, that can provide the supplies and the materials that we need. Do you have that flexibility, though, because you had to name who your supplier was in your application. I think this, does the state need to approve if you want to switch out, we want a cheaper light source? Um, I'll let Mark talk to some of that, but when you're talking about what you mentioned in your application, you're looking at your larger equipment and that you're still using. These are more parts that make that equipment operate. So for the, for the lighting configuration, it still is exactly what was stated. It's just a different light bulb, a high-pressure sodium light bulb. Um, so, yeah, looking for things like that to change. I was interested in the, again, kind of the local 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 expertise and local money. So when you were, uh, and, and maybe you can answer this as well, Mark, but how much of the investor groups and the actual operational expertise are you getting from Ohio, or is this, uh, you know, the, the established players in Colorado and California coming in? Yeah, so I'll touch on that first. You know, there are consulting arrangements. You're going to find people that have a lot of experience doing this in other states. Yeah. Uh, but if you do it right, they come in and it's more of a knowledge transfer. So as I mentioned, bringing in roughly, I think we have roughly 50 cultivation staff of the 72 currently. Okay. Um, it's about equipping them with that knowledge at the ground level. So when they come in doing that training and then eventually all of them are up to speed on our cultivation practices <laughs> you know, what's, what's the plant life cycle look like? And then they control those operations. So initially, when you have an industry that didn't exist in a state, you're right. going to have to get that baseline knowledge. Right. And that's kind of what you saw set forth by all the different applicants and how they would get up to speed. Uh, but for us, now that we have that knowledge, it's about making sure enough people have that knowledge to make the business run. Okay. Andy, how about you? Um, so finding local talent uh, in the marijuana you know, cultivation industry yeah. uh, is definitely possible, um, but they generally aren't qualified. Um, and and what I mean by that is, you know, just because somebody is really, really passionate about weed doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be able to grow in the environment that, that we put in our application. Okay. Um, so generally, you know, you, it, those those types of the higher level managers and, and you know, the cultivation managers and the, that level of expertise has to come from somebody in another state who's, you know, been it, lived it, done it, and gets transplanted um, here in Ohio. I think you'll find that that's generally there. Once you get down below that, that person who's you know, managing or providing the expertise into more of the, the, the laborer level, if you want to call it that, the on the floor, touching the plants, that kind yeah. of stuff, those are absolutely local, local folks, right? Um, we actually, as strange as it may sound, we, we tend to, I like people who aren't from the industry. I like people who have uh, job experiences in other industries who can bring that knowledge and you know that skill set to us. We know how to grow marijuana, right? Right. What we may not do know how to do is is some of the the packaging, you know, automation kind of stuff, for instance. You know what I mean? So bringing expertise in from other industries and helping using that to supplement the operation is a is kind of our strategy and how we how we hire. 
That's a good point. You know, in Zaysville, Cardinal had a big operation, a big packaging and distribution operation. Uh, right. Being able to tap into some of the uh, staff that used to work there and kind of bring over some of those practices. To Andy's point, that's more general, not industry specific. And so adding local talent with that knowledge has been really helpful for us. And then how about investors? Um, from a, like, no, from or is, or is it mostly Ohio people, or is it you know people coming in from other states? Uh, so I can speak for us. It's it's all Ohio. And, all Ohio. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you know, I tell you, the the industry, two years or how I'm not sure how long ago it's been, but two and a half years. Whenever we wrote the original applications, <laughs> the industry does not look the same as it did two and a half years ago when we wrote our initial applications. Uh, it's almost daily that you're seeing some merger or some acquisition, and yeah, there's you know hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars going on. Um, the, you know, the industry is gobbling itself up quickly. And so, um, you know, currently, just like Justin said, you know, our, our investment group was the original group that we put in our application and, and allow it. Um, but the, you know, the, the amount of money that's being thrown around by some of these very large groups, um, you know, Harvest, GTI, uh, you know, some of the, the, the very large players in the industry, um, it, it, it's just crazy, right? So I, I look at it a little bit from the other side, and the Apex Supercritical Equipment Manufacturer side. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got customers in, in you know, all of, all of recreational and medical states. Um, and, you know, what we're seeing is a, a tremendous amount of energy by our customers five, six, seven years ago that just got bought up. And, you know, they got bought up for their expertise. And now they're, instead of being in one or two states, they're in 14. Right, and so our customers going, hey, I need I need 11 systems, 11 CO2 extraction systems to go in these 11 different states, and oh, by the way, I need them next week. Right, right? Um, that's that's what's different, right? Uh, this industry didn't look like that just two years ago. So um, you know, your question about you know where are investments coming from today? Well, I mean they're they're where they are for those established guys, yeah. but man, oh man, you're going to see an absolute flurry of of you know once once transitions and and um, investments are allowed per regulatory standards, you're going to see just a, a huge flurry of these big guys coming in here and, and just swallowing everybody up. And Mark, when does that happen? So under, under our rules, um, it's actually a little bit different for uh, the, the growers and the, and the <coughs> processors that we regulate. Okay. Uh, it's once you get operational. Um, at that point, you are allowed to um, petition the, the state for management, ownership type changes. Pharmacy board, it's a little bit longer. It's, it's a year after, after you become operational. Um, Carrie referenced earlier, you know, one of the dynamics of this program, in addition to all of the other things that we've talked about this morning, that hasn't really been touched on is it was a competitive application program. And so you know, for, for the, the number of cultivator licenses that we awarded, we had 185 applications, right. 104 for the 40 processors. They had over 300 for the, the dispensaries. And so there's an element from a state perspective of we really have to honor that, you know, if, if for, the, for the folks who, who uh, were successful in getting licenses, make sure that they're doing what they said in their application they were going to do because that was the basis on which they got an application and somebody else didn't. Mm -hmm. So, it, in an, you know, we've talked about the challenges. This is just one more. In an industry as, as volatile and as rapidly changing as this one is, that creates some... some challenges for us on the regulatory side. So, so to Andy's point, we're already seeing it, and, and we don't think it's going to slow down, that, that once these licensees become operational, we're going to start seeing uh, some of those ownership changes and it being requested. And from our perspective, it really gets down to, at that point, then again, 
what are our core values? Our core values are protecting the public. And so we, it's not our job to stifle an industry, and this, this thing is so widespread uh, that it's got its own momentum that we couldn't even if we tried. So our job is to ensure that this, these changes um, and these businesses are, are evolving in a way that continues to be consistent with what they told us they were going to do and consistent with our values of protecting, protecting the patients. And, and I think we have to, and, and, and you know, this is all new for us too, so it's, it's an evolving challenge for us just as it's an evolving challenge for the businesses. So we need to try to be as flexible as we can be with the industry while you know, protecting our core values. So we have here in Johnson a cultivator that was licensed fully one year after the first batch, and they're ahead of, as far as I can tell, ahead of construction on some of the initial applicants. Is there, is there a point where the department starts revoking more of the initial licenses for failure to progress? So we have, um, of the 29 cultivators that have been awarded licenses, we have 16 of them that are operational. Um, not all of them, you know, as, as Andy's group is one, started at the same starting point. Um, we did, in, in initial, sort of step back as background. Yeah, the, so the rules allow a certain uh, provisional license period. For cultivators, it was nine months. For processors, uh, testing labs, and dispensaries, it was six months. So once, once awarded a license, uh, you would have that amount of time to get operational. But then, you know, again, we want to recognize that these are businesses. They run into Ohio winters. They run into local regulatory issues. They run into contract issues. They run into challenges in an exploding industry with getting all the equipment that they need, right? That all of those things that, that any other type of business makes. <coughs> so again, we needed to be flexible, so there was built in that an opportunity for licensees to say, hey, on our nine months are up, but we're going to need some additional time. So the standard that we set is really moving forward in good faith. You know, we understand that there are things that can get in your way, um, but as long as you were, were working towards trying to become operational, and then you can tell us when you know, if you need additional time, when that's going to be, we've tried to be flexible. Um, we uh, were not flexible for, for licensees who might come to us and say, you know, we wanted to wait and see if the market was really going to develop so we haven't built out. So, so we haven't, th those would be the types of things that we would say, no, this program, you were awarded a license with the intention of becoming operational. But we have been, I think, pretty flexible on that. Um, that being said, what we asked when these licensees uh, were given extensions was, tell us when you're going to be ready. And the bar gets higher at that point. We do expect if you, you know, once you've been, had your license for nine months and you say, okay, we're going to need three more months, we think you ought to have a pretty good sense that that's, that's the right time. And when we come out to inspect you at that point, uh, if you're not able to, uh, to be operational, enforcement action starts to come into play. So I think we have done that. I think we um, have, have tried to, to hold people to the timelines that they've told us that they were going to do. Um, I think that we have uh, taken some enforcement actions where uh, we felt like people weren't doing either moving forward in good faith or later in that process doing what they told us that they were going to do. But um, again, it's sort of the balance between understanding that these are, are businesses that are investing a lot of money or running into to some of these challenges, but also 
wanting to get this industry stood up so you know to to get as much access as possible for the for the, the people of Ohio. So right now you're the answer to that is you're not close to revoking any other licenses. You're, you're not finding people who are not progressing in good faith. I would say um, amongst the people who have been have been awarded extensions, uh, we may find some people who uh, we feel like we need to take some action, but it, it, it's at a lesser level. It, it's not that they're not moving forward in good faith at all that we would consider taking their license and giving it to somebody else. We've not necessarily seen that amongst the, the group of people who initially were, were moving forward in good faith that we gave an extension to. Why do we have only one processor? They're, they're even supposed to be a shorter time frame than the cultivators. Why is it taking so long? So the, the, the four license types were awarded on, on different schedules. Um, cultivators obviously came first because you know the life cycle of the, the product that you have to have uh, the plants first. Uh, the processors were the, the, the last set of, of licensees to be awarded. Um, some of that had to do with the fact that uh, of the elements of the, the life cycle of the program, you could go to market with plant material. Um, there are, there are other elements of it, including some of the process stuff that happened at the state level, uh, where we uh, implemented some changes in the, in the processor application reviews based on what we learned uh, through the cultivators that, that went first and, and got to, uh, you know, got, got to kind of be first and, and, and um, be the ones who, who learned what we could do better, what we could, you know, what were the, the issues that, that our licensees had. So we made some of those changes in the processor part of it. And then the third piece that, that slowed the processor side down was uh, we were allowed by rule to award up to 40 licenses. In our first round of scoring, uh, we were only able to award 14. So we actually just recently awarded um, the second round of licenses. Um, so all of that has, has put processors on a different time frame than, than really the rest of the, the licensees. Can you speak at all to the consolidation of the industry? Yeah, I mean, I can speak to it in terms of what you hear sort of buzz around the nationwide discussion is all these local players who have to be local to some extent to get the initial licenses to, to you know, stay intrastate because states are eager to, you know, have them be local businesses and, mm -hmm. and contribute to the local community. Uh, the thought is be functional enough so that you can be bought out by the mid-level guys relatively soon, and then if you can make it a little bit further, you'll be bought out by the super big guys eventually. And so mm -hmm. my sense is there's definitely sort of money coming into the industry based around almost like we can flip this as long as we can get the license, and that's a scarce commodity. And that's where, you know, ironically, in a state like Ohio, where there are less licenses, right, that's going to be more, more of a potential money. issue than like Oklahoma, where they let anybody have a license, okay, I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to pay any kind of premium to get this resource because it's it's not scarce. The problem is letting anybody have a license has its own sets of problems and so it's not clear that it's a bad from a public health public safety perspective to have these restrictions, but it does fuel the the acquisition kind of approach here and you know we see it not just, you know, vis-a-vis -vis those who get licenses uh, in the industry, you know, Scott's Miracle Grow made a huge hydroponics buy, you know, anticipating that that's going to be something useful down the line in this space. You know, that, that it's, it's not just 
businesses get started with these licenses and then uh, bigger players come along or you know money consolidates other ways or you know people who missed out on the license right. want their chance to be in it it's that there's just so much excitement at times potentially too much excitement around this industry right it, again because i think it's the kind of thing that's that's also seen as sexy whether it's sexy from a venture capital perspective whether it's sexy from a Hey, what a nice addition to my portfolio! I get to say at the country club, you know, I've got a pot stock or whatever it is. And right. so, uh, at some level, it's not surprising. It's also what markets do, right? I mean, at some level, and you know, Mark said this in terms of this is a private industry, right? You know, there's there's plenty of other examples of this. Many people talk about wanting or at least expecting some aspect of the marijuana industry to turn into the sort of craft beer space. And my sense is that there's been an awful lot of consolidation in that space at various times, but then still some local players, you know, kind of find their way without either wanting to or needing to, you know, get bought out by bigger money. The other piece that's challenging, and it's challenging, again, with, you know, Andy's point of recreational marijuana being inevitable, ringing in my head, you know, my sense is, especially in a state like Ohio, when you're doing marijuana, medical marijuana only in the short term, there's not a profit expected for a number of years, right? That's a pretty long timeline. And when somebody comes along and says, hey, I'll buy you out now, get your cash, you know, you've done the hard work of getting the license, we appreciate that. We can afford to, to, to go the long haul, the long haul, either to be profitable in a medical scheme or for what we anticipate will be a, a recreational regime. Um, it's hard for me to criticize somebody for being drawn into that, right? And, and again, they've added value, right? Filling out the applications, getting it approved, getting the business started is an extraordinary accomplishment in its own right. And uh, you know, I kind of share what I sort of surmise Mark was saying, which is you don't want to create any huge barriers to allowing people who, generally speaking, are coming in because they not unreasonably think, you know, we can help do this somewhat more efficiently and somewhat more effectively. You know, we've dealt with packaging, we've dealt with you know, grow problems, right? I remember going to a, uh, an industry talk and they were highlighting, this is already, you know, a couple years ago, um, that they had started a grow facility in Illinois and had used a set of machines for humidity in Arizona or somewhere else that worked perfectly for growing good product there. But in Illinois, it created mold because I guess the, you know, humidity content in Illinois is, you know, higher or whatever yeah, the case sense. may be. And nobody knew that until, you know, a big person came along and said, Okay, here's how we need to fix that. But the initial licensee, you know, just lost, you know, an entire grow that they were planning on having and building product out of. And so, you know, just things happen in business that that um, I think in this space especially make it especially attractive for folks who have you know the resources to come in and say we can do better and we will do better. And and I you know I I tend to be drawn to the idea of subject to people living up to their commitments, mm -hmm. right? right? That yeah. that it's not a bad thing that that happens, um, you know, um, but it also is, you know, another layer of the challenge of such a dynamic space, as Andy said, you know, I think there's about a six-month life cycle in how the industry evolves so quickly that, you know, um, to even predict where we're going to be, you know, by the end of this year in Ohio nationwide is challenging enough to predict where we're going to be two or three years from now, and that's another reason why a business might say, okay, this, this isn't as fun as I thought it was going to be or as easy as I thought it was going to be even when I got the license and did all that work. So is the Kurtz family seeing this as a 
you know, a turnaround investment, or are they committed to Ohio ownership? Yeah, I mean, I would say absolutely committed to Ohio ownership. Um, things, you know, things are changing, kind of going to your point, and Sandy, with the legal field. You know, I have a legal background. I'm not an expert here, but watching the acquisition piece is kind of fascinating uh, in what you're seeing over the last year or so, uh, particularly with Canada fully recreational and the ability to raise funds, raise capital. There's a lot more opportunity up there. Uh, so you're starting to see these bigger players form companies up there and kind of watch over the U.S. and the different states that maybe have uh, reduced ownership restrictions. And so they can start to play in those states and just slowly watching where other states change their ownership requirements, uh, just prepping for when they can come in and do a, a federal play. Um, so to your question, yes, absolutely committed to Ohio ownership. Um, you know, we've done the right things. We've hired all the local people there and feel like we have a great operation to, you know, whatever happens. If, if it goes legal federally, uh, if the state decides to go recreational, I think we're in a good position. Some, uh, some, some licensee perspective to, to what Doug was saying there. You know, uh, the, the being a, a vertical license set, right, would seem to be one of the, the, you know, the more ideal situations. I think there's two or maybe three um, that, uh, of us that were capable of, of producing the license set in each of the, the three different areas, cultivation, processing, and dispensing. But even with a ver vertical license set, it has its challenges, right? For instance, you know, we set up our initial structure, our investment portfolios, our ownership schemes, and, and expertise on five dispensaries. We were only awarded one. And so while we're technically a vertical license set, we've only got one dispensary, right? And standing up one dispensary, is a, it's a challenge. I mean, we get no benefits of you know, economies of efficiencies from being able to have five different dispensaries. We can you know, share administrative resources or share marketing or branding. We've got one. And so you know, that, that, that scenario um, is what I think is going to you know, further, further create an ideal environment for somebody to come in and say, hey, you know, not only do we have five in Ohio, but we got you know, 50 in Florida and another you know, right. whatever. Those, those kind of market dynamics are, are going to make it almost impossible to deny. Well, and Doug brought up an interesting point, too, uh, uh, as far as the profitability of, w of what you're doing. Are, are, do you expect to be profitable in your one, two, five, ten? Well, when you mentioned three years, I think that's accurate from build-out. You know, given the nine months that were permitted and with the winners, roughly a year, year and a half. So I think it, <clears throat> the first year of operation, meaning when you start to harvest, I think companies will start to see a profit towards the end of that first year when they start to harvest their their plant material. But, I mean, the expenses are real from an energy consumption standpoint, from a staffing with wages, um, to just everything that goes into the grow process. I think, you know, your everyday patient or consumer would be amazed to see um, what goes into it from a highly regulated medical market. So I think, you know, three years from when you start harvesting is probably a little long. But when you first look at, okay, I'm going to put the shovel on the ground, I think that's absolutely accurate. Yeah. Yeah, we had, you know, on our original application time frame, it was three years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we, got, we got the opportunity to start a year later. So we're actually, you know, because the market is a little bit more formed and, and has uh, um, a little bit more opportunities already established for us, you know, we're looking at more of an 18-month time frame now. Um, but originally, it was absolutely three years. And that's, that was part of the application. I mean, that was part of the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the information you had to put in your application is how are not only going to build out your $20 million facility, but also how are you going to sustain it for the next three years because you're not going to make any money. Mm -hmm. Well, then, the, the, you know, the, the, I know there's a possibility of potentially adding more uh, you know, later, but the, the enforced uh, um, uh, shortage of, of, you know, of patients, I mean, doesn't that, that in some way help 
you that there's not like Colorado and California where there's dispensaries on every corner? Uh, yeah, so I would agree with you on the dispensaries. Yeah, um, to some degree. Patients, absolutely not. We want as many patients as we can possibly get, right? I mean, that just creates a demand that, that everybody benefits from. Mm-hmm. Um, the number of dispensaries is a little bit tricky in that, you know, you, you don't necessarily have one on every corner because then the dispensaries become unstable themselves. Right, right. But, but allowing, um, you know, 12 million people and 60 dispensaries, right, that ratio is not adequate. Right? There's not enough access just in general to the, to the entire, entire state. So, you know, I'd, I'd definitely like to see more dispensaries uh, get, get put up in the near term. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. And also looking at, like, different hospitals, vet, veteran hospitals and things like that, where maybe it's difficult to have a caregiver service all the people that are there uh, because they can't get out or they can't get to a dispensary. Okay. So I think that would be one of the, the big things I would agree with Andy as far as accessibility. 56 is, a, is where we are right now. Uh, I think that will change, you know, as you start to see these dispensaries come online. Mm-hmm. Anything in other states on that uh, as far as what you've... I mean, you know, so much depends in terms of patients, a combination of what are qualifying conditions. Ohio's pretty good on that, has some of the more expansive among all the states sets of qualifying conditions. Uh, but, you know, what we end up seeing, the price point for doctors, how many doctors are even willing to be recommenders, right, get their certificates to recommend. Um, you know, the big hospital systems are not supportive of that at all for, again, federal prohibition having its own set of echoes. We've got the problem you mentioned veterans, right? The VA doctors can't recommend either because of federal prohibition. And so, you know, there are, there are these significant barriers to expanding the market as much as possible. And to me, that's a big shame because it just means that we don't get as robust an understanding of who really can be helped, right? The patient classes skewed almost sort of by definition by people who are willing to still take the somewhat challenging step of finding a new doctor, often it is, to get a recommendation, finding where a dispensary is, which aren't often, you know, sort of easily accessible. The irony, at least from a research perspective, is when you see states do some patient surveys, Minnesota's got a a particularly good one, although it's a couple years old, you get a lot of patient satisfaction because they've had so many barriers to access that usually they're kind of inclined to say, hey, this was really good for me, right? And and that's great. And in some sense, it, it's, it's helpful to a medical marijuana regime, right? We don't end up having lots of patients who complain to the legislatures, oh, I got hoodwinked or I thought this was terrible or, you know, this really hurt me in combination with other medicines because it tends to be folks who are dissatisfied um, with traditional medicines who are sort of drawn to go in that direction. But again, it, it, when you think about it from a you know a public health and an academic study perspective, you end up getting these skewings that end up you know shaping how we even understand the potential of of medical marijuana because we're we're not getting every doctor in every system even learning about it, thinking about it, thinking about how to recommend and work with it, and and it's you know it's it's an interesting dynamic where essentially you know local folks have to do their best at getting dispensaries up and running to create. You know, patient advocates who are working there who can help patients navigate their own health care in a way that still it's not like <laughs> buying antibiotics from a farmer's market, but it's not still as advanced as it could be, though that's, you know, wholly a function of federal prohibition creating barriers to having a more systematized approach to providing this form of health care. And Doug, you mentioned VA doctors, the doctors of VA. We have a, uh, an attorney on staff who is in JAG, and he just told me yesterday that there is legislation being proposed on the federal level that will carve out an exception for veterans for medical marijuana yeah, yeah. Um, that is being proposed. 
um, for PTSD, right. TBIs, and, and just any pain that they're going through. It would be just for veterans. Hopefully they take a little bit farther and take it into their employment where they may come up against a wall with that, but mm -hmm. that's supposedly being proposed or has been. Mm -hmm. We don't have time for a couple more questions, but I, I did want to make sure that we hit on the banking uh, uh, issue here. You know, are you still finding, um, well, I think you mentioned it earlier, mm -hmm. but, uh, that, that, that this is just a non-starter a non for, for most banks? Yeah, yeah, for a lot of them it is. Uh, there are a few that kind of have embraced it and, and feel like they have strong regulatory practices, know your customer laws, and have, have jumped into the space, but that's very few. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, it's not just banking, unfortunately. It's companies that offer investment products. Um, uh, you know, I've had my kid's 529 um, college account canceled. Um, so it's very real. It's very real. Yeah, it's... Uh, it same, same for us. And this is, I mean, you know, you, you wrote an article on this a couple of years ago with, with me, I think, and, and it's, it's just the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it's, it's totally my soapbox just because I've had to live it. Yeah. Um, you know, my customers, unfortunately, experience it a thousand times worse than I do. But as an equipment supplier who, don't, who doesn't touch the plant material, right. getting my account shut down by every bank here in the state of Ohio, right, it's just annoying, right? And, and the reason I say it's annoying because it's totally a decision. It's a choice. Right, by these banks. There isn't some you know, federal law or someplace that says banks can't do stuff with marijuana, right? It's a lawyer, no offense to lawyers amongst us here, but it's a lawyer you know, in, in, in a bank that's sitting up there saying, nope, this is too big of a risk for us, okay. right? And you know, the, the idea that, that somehow or another you're gonna get our, our kids' bank accounts, you know, I had $17 in my kids' bank account, got shut down, right? And you know, it, it, it's, it's very, very frustrating because none of the banks give you the same reason. Right? The smaller banks tend to say, well, the bigger banks who we've got you know, a um, line of credits with uh, say that you know, we can't bank you anymore. I mean, I've had presidents of banks come, smaller banks, local, come sit in my office and say, hey, we want you. We want to you know, take on the industry. And you know, we're going to do all the stuff. And cash isn't even part of the conversation, right? with right. us anyway. Right? Cash, isn't, it's, it's not even part of the conversation. It's just taking our, our wire transfers right? and, our, and our checks from customers, putting them in account, transferring them through. We voluntarily put together know your customer programs, and you know the that you know one of the particular banks that came sat down six months later said sorry we can't do it, and we're like well you know you guys came here and asked us what, right. why are you now turning around they said well you know one of our bigger banks had a line of credit said that we can't do it and we can't just we can't jeopardize our line of credit in order to to allow you to do it. So it, you know it's those those types of individual decisions. Uh, there's a, a huge misperception that you know the banking industry just has this, you know, over overarching force that can't let them do it. Not true at all, right? It's it's it comes down to economics for the banks, right? And it's a it's a decision. Once there's enough volume, you're going to start to see more and more banks in Ohio right. start to take on the the opportunities because the, there's volume to justify the expense associated with the Know Your Customer program. Um, but I, I just wish they would say it that way, right? We don't want to because it doesn't make economic sense. Not, well, we can't because the federal government says, right? And that's I'm totally on my soapbox here, sorry. No. Well, in Ohio, too, you know, there is legislation around the closed-loop payment system, yeah. which I think, in theory, is great. But the, the problem is, at the end of the day, you still have money going into these federally and state chartered banks. Yeah. 
Um, and so that's, I think that's kind of the, the difficulty with that piece there. Right. Um, so yeah, to Andy's point, um, until these larger institutions or even these smaller institutions feel comfortable with the level of activity coming in to have a program that's sustainable by that, then it's going to continue to be yeah. an issue. And, it, and it's not just banks. It's insurance companies, mm-hmm. um, you know, finding an insurance company that's willing to do it. It's an accounting service. You know, mm-hmm. you know we've been using the same accountant for five or six years. And, you know, the minute we got our cultivation license or our processing license, yeah. whichever one came first, they said, eh, sorry. They dropped you. Yeah. So, and for some reason that, that you know, Apex Supercritical takes money from, you know, licensed marijuana processors in other states. But when we start taking money as our own processing entity, that was the line, right? And why, why you know, that's the, you know, how many, how many levels do you have to be removed before yeah. it's okay? Uh, that, that apparently was the level. To that point, Doug, I want to add that we were just renewing our um, legal malpractice and um, was turned down by several insurance companies Mm -hmm. because we are uh, dealing with with medical (coughs) marijuana in our law firm. That is bizarre. And and obviously there's Doug... In, in the, on the horizon. Yeah, I, I would say no hope, right? This, in addition to the VA bill, there's always a banking bill going yeah. around. It actually got a hearing for the first time uh, a couple months ago, and so there's there's talk of it. But again, you know, the the folks who are resistant to any kind of marijuana reform, perhaps justifiably, fear that giving any ground on the banking space, particularly, would yeah. fuel the industry in a powerful I, way. And so, I totally agree. If, if if the banking was the only thing that got done on a federal level, it'd be a huge win for the industry. Mm-hmm. But it would really. I think provide a lot of fuel to the industry too, in a way that yeah. that is why that that hasn't been uh, supported, even by you know. Which it, it, usually the politics run the other way, right? Usually it tends to be uh, you know folks on the right who don't want to put too many restrictions on what banks can do and how they do it. But here they're disinclined to do this kind of carve out because of you know the nature of the subject matter and the politics around it. And so um, I, I continue to remain hopeful. We've seen nationwide kind of a slow creep of smaller banks, credit unions, and the like being willing to bank industry players a little bit more. Um, again, I think as more time unfolds in the Trump era with more states coming online with you know full-on programs, there's a growing sense, well, the risk really isn't that big. And as Andy put it, you know, it, it's just a matter of economics. If there's enough money to make by banking the industry, gee, maybe it's worth it mm-hmm. to take the risks and to do the extra paperwork that's involved. But for an awful lot, I mean, it's it. as much as I'm eager to highlight, you know, economic development, employment issues, the industry sort of growing in significant ways, this is one area where still they're going to be such a small piece of any banking portfolio, it's going to be hard um, even for the bigger players in this industry to go to a bank and say, hey, you know, you can't afford not to bank us because, um, you know, they, 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 they recognize the risk and ironically, the larger the player, to some extent, their lawyers would likely say the bigger the risk, right? Yep. So, right, Pat, coming up, that didn't fix it. Instantly. Well, so we're so we're not open yet. Um, you know what I mean. So I, you know, we're not actually taking transactions. So I, I can't really speak to it. Maybe you guys can. Yeah, I can let you know in a couple of weeks <laughs> as we get some processed products out. Uh, I think it's a good sign. Uh, I think it, it's another avenue for other banks maybe to speak with uh, to figure out how they got to a level of comfort uh, with banking the industry. But you look at the number of locations. Um, it's tough. Yeah, there's electronic banking and mobile deposit opens up some things, but that also opens up different. Uh, legal hurdles. So um, I think it's great that some a credit union or a bank has embraced it, but there absolutely needs to be more moving forward. And my understanding is most of them are charging a significant premium to to be willing to bank anybody can, in this space. Can you right? say significant 
louder? Yeah. 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 How, yeah. how can you yeah. emphasize yeah. And so, you know, that's another, you know, even if you can get the banking services, if you're paying a particular premium for that, again, it gets back to how do you provide product at an yeah. affordable cost to patients, right? If you're paying a 10% premium just with banking, that's going to get passed on to the customer. It's going to have to get passed on to the customer. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's another, another way in which, you know, the regulatory realities combine with federal prohibition to make it awfully hard to make this a patient-friendly reality, no matter how hard the players in the system, no matter how hard the regulators try to make it work. Well, that is all the time uh, that, that we have uh, today. So, uh, uh, thank you very much uh, for your for your input. This thank has you. been a fascinating discussion. It is a fascinating industry, and uh, we will continue to cover it closely. So, expect to hear from us uh, plenty uh, in in the coming year. Um, and uh, and good luck to all of you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you for the invitation. You.